is his blueprint. And we did that cover on, uh, was it Boulder? That cover right there? Yeah. It was in Boulder. Yeah. That was a crazy day. Yeah. First time we met, right? Yep. 2013. All right. Are we ready? Tell me a little bit about your family growing up. I grew up in the north side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Saganash, which is blue collar. My mom was a physical therapist. She retired about 10 years ago. And um, my dad works in the futures business. He's a chairman and CEO of a large independent um, clearinghouse, futures clearinghouse. I think, you know, most kids grow up with like idols like Michael Jordan or like Kanye West. For me, when I grew up, my parents were my idols. My dad was always just incredible. What were the things that he imparted to you about business that still stick with you? The first thing I remember him teaching me about was reputation. When I was little, I have a little brother, Jerry. Um, me and him were free spirits. <laughs> and um, not in the sense of like being bad kids, but we just did what we wanted to do. Just stay out late or, you know, fool around in class. And my dad would always drill into us like, your reputation is everything, you know? It, it's what precedes you, and it's what people are gonna know about you after you're gone. You know, as, as a kid in high school, did you have any sort of sense of professional purpose or, like, aspiration? No, I didn't. In high school, I, I, you know, I think like everybody, we bounced back and forth. I really didn't know, which is normal, I think, you know? When did it start to come into focus for you? At the same time I was on the varsity football team, I was also on the honors choir. And choir changed my life. I really loved, like, fell in love with music and, and learned a lot about music. When I got to college, I met my friends who I work with today, and we started a music blog, and that was sort of like the beginning of, of what you're seeing now. For us, it was just more fun than a career. And then we got into throwing shows and then doing music videos and then pretty much just helping artists in any way. Were you completely putting this together on the fly or did you have some mentorship? At that time, it was completely on the fly. Like, no mentors, no help, no nothing. And our first show, like, flopped. It was awful. Who, who was headlining? Rhyme Fest. Okay. Yeah, and we did Lincoln Hall. Um, the Lincoln Hall folks here in Chicago, I grew up with the, the son of the guy who started Shubas in Lincoln Hall. So when I wanted to do my first show, I was like, yo, give me a great deal and we'll throw the show and it'll just be like a showcase where we'll bring a bunch of artists together. It flopped. We sold like 100 tickets. And like we owed the venue like 1,500 bucks. At the end. We just didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> but like we tried it, you know? And then like through trying it, we learned so much about what we wanted to do, right? So I think we promoted it maybe for only two weeks with like flyers. It was tough. I remember calling my dad and being like, I need you to give me some money so I can pay Lincoln Hall. Okay. And uh, I stopped trying to be a promoter. And what led me from doing the shows to eventually getting into artist management was I met kids these days, which was Vic Mensa, Nico Segal, Greg Landfair, Lane Beckstrom, Macy Stewart. I was like, yo, I need to like... I need to do anything I can do for you guys. What can I do? You know, can I go to Dunkin' Donuts for you guys? Can I pick up some weed for you guys? You know, can I do, can I buy, can I throw a party for you guys? I sort of just like 
was around, you know, try to be around it as much as I could. And their manager, um, Demo, who's a legendary, like, Chicago radio-slash-management figure, he was like, yeah, come on. And I sort of just, like, shadowed Demo for about a year. And that meant, like, going to McDonald's or selling merch at the merch table. I'd drive to North Carolina. We'd set everything up. I'd run the merch table, we'd break everything down, put it back in the sprinter, and then I'd drive back home. In one night? In one day, yeah. Doing that kind of work for that amount of time takes a certain amount of determination mm-hmm. and humility um, and, and just drive. Mm-hmm. Where do you think those things came from? I think the humility definitely from my parents. You know, it was natural for me to be, I'm not better than anyone else, and um, you got to work hard. Right. When I got with Kids These Days, it grabbed me. I felt like, I think I can be the fucking best at this. And for me, I never really had anything that, that took hold of me like this music stuff did when I was 20 years old. Were you making any real money doing the Kids These Days stuff? No, I didn't get paid anything. So this was almost like an internship? Pretty much, yeah. But my yeah. dad still calls my job to this day the best paying internship of all time. <laughs> but him calling it that helps me like take away the lessons that I can from it, you know? And he encourages that. He's like, learn as much as you can. Like, this is fucking crazy. As you're doing this, you don't have that same financial pressure that a lot of artists in those early days have, mm-hmm. that they have to make these things work, right? Mm-hmm. One of my friends uh, put it best to me. <laughs> he goes, you know, your parents are, they've done great for themselves, but you went and you did it harder than anyone else. And it's not because you had an empty stomach. You did it because you felt it and that it was internal and that you wanted it. And he was like, that's fucking rare, man. During the course of that time, you meet Chance. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your introduction. We didn't have the most friendly exchange to begin with because I was like at a, I was, we were at a, my friend's apartment, we were throwing a party, I think it was for like, it was one of the band members' birthdays, but Chance was always just like this guy at the party who's just causing a scene, you know? But it was fun-loving, you know? It wasn't like negative. High school, yeah. And so that was like the first time meeting Chance um, on like a communicative level where we were communicating and then the next time I saw him was at uh, these legendary 10-day listening parties so it's like this little six-inch platform that Chance was sitting on he was like doing he did some to track and then I remember I think he did brain cells acapella I remember that night I was just like I'm here. that's when I was like holy shit this is fucking amazing what was the thing that drew you to him? I think the performance was incredible that night, and that was, like, amazing. So he's, like, pantomiming over the tracks, basically? Yeah, he was killing it. It was just, like, pouring his fucking heart out in front of all these kids, packed, like, streetwear shop in Chicago. And that was just amazing to see. But that was, like, the first time where I, like, viewed Chance through the lens of, wow, this kid's a musician. This kid's a performer. At that moment, did you did you know that you wanted to work with him? No. The way that I work with musicians has always come from a place of, like, you have to really protect this and build this slowly. And so when I saw him, I was just a pure fan. 
Like that night at Leaders, for me, that's when the legend of Chance started for Pat. So, how do you go from being a fan of Chance, working with kids these days, to making that transition to sort of first just go out on your own mm -hmm. and then to, you know, create this partnership with, with him? I had stopped working with kids these days right at the end of 2011, and I'd started working with two rappers from Chicago, Ken Bayx and Alex Wiley, in the same capacity that I worked for kids these days. And uh, me and a guy by the name of uh, Alex Riley um, shot a music video for Alex Wiley and Ken Bayx called Dollar Please. And it was this you know, awesome video that was shot on a DSLR, just one camera, just riding around the city. We posted it and like, XXL picked it up like right away and I think Complex picked it up and it was sort of like everyone was like whoa what's going on like who did this video this and that and that was sort of like one of the things that was not in a supportive role but like hey let's take the lead on something and do this the next video that we did um, was a Caleb James video that uh, Elijah Alvarado shot in my parents garage and uh, Chance came just to hang. I remember they were shooting the video upstairs in the garage and Chance and I were downstairs watching TV, just sort of sitting there, bored. Like, I hate video shoots. I hate being on set at a film. And Chance obviously felt the same way that day. So, and I, I told him, I was like, if there's anything I could ever do to work with you, anything you ever need, just let me know. I'll do anything. And so, yeah, cool, What you know, whatever. And that was that. Two weeks later after that, um, I was driving everybody to the radio station. We picked them up and we went out to the Power 92 radio station in Hammond, Indiana. And um, Chance's dad met us there. And Chance's dad at the time was the Midwest director of the Department of Labor. It was appointed by uh, President Obama. And so he showed up, very nice suit, um, Cadillac. And I was like, whoa, sick. You know, like this guy, seems awesome and me and chance's dad we just start chatting with another guy named genesis who was ken bay and alex's manager and i was sort of like the sidekick at the time mr bennett was interested in what was the best way to throw chance's first show in chicago and so genesis had these ideas and then mr bennett turned towards me and said what do you think and i said you should do a show at lincoln hall you know, it's a, you know, 500 cap. I think you guys can handle that. It's a little bit newer than Reggie's, which would be the other 500 cap. Um, and Chance had already played a few shows at Reggie's, and I just felt like Lincoln Hall was like the new frontier for him. It wasn't as much about the content of the conversation as it was the context and how me and Mr. Bennett connected. And I think he felt that I genuinely cared about Chance and that I was genuinely a fan. A couple weeks had passed. I'd, you know, went to the radio station and met Mr. Bennett, and on May 1st, I was sitting at the dinner table having, like, a birthday dinner with my dad, and I got a phone call from Mr. Bennett. This is from a random number, and I answered it, and he said, Pat? And I said, yeah. He's like, this is uh, Ken Bennett. I want to talk to you. I said, what's up? He goes, you know, I was speaking with Chance, and um, we think you'd make a good manager. And I was like, whoa, like, completely floored. He's like, I want to meet up with you tomorrow, um, and, ch and I'm going to bring Chance and Taylor, and uh, we'll meet up by leaders, and we'll have some food, and we'll talk about it. So I said, amazing, thank you so much, and I'll see you tomorrow. And I hung up the phone, went back to my dad's birthday dinner, sort of told everyone, I was like, something really amazing just happened.
and the next day, we'd all gotten together. We had a conversation, probably about an hour long, about how it was all going to work. And it wasn't any type of like deal-making process. It was more of like a great conversation between friends about how much I cared about Chance and how honored I was to be considered for this opportunity to help Chance get the recognition that he deserves. What I remember vividly was, you know, Michael Jordan wasn't the best basketball player ever. He was just the best known basketball player. So it's your guys' job now to take Chance from being really good to being really good but noticed. You know, whatever you guys don't know now, whatever you don't know, whatever Chance doesn't know, you guys will learn it together. And that was like day one. With marching orders from Mr. Bennett, Corcoran got to work. He and Chance would have to learn every aspect of the business while industry execs circled them like sharks in the water. Basically, I just put up some stuff on the walls that I've been really proud about, uh, things that we've accomplished, sort of my Chance cover wall right here that's missing quite a few covers. This cover with Lin-Manuel Miranda, which was really, really cool and... Um, Noah had all these ideas, and his team had a lot of ideas, like, what do we want to do, what do we want to do? And Chance and Lynn were going back and forth and back and forth, and actually Noah and I conceptualized this idea, and Chance and Lynn actually said yes to it. And so these are pictures from Magnificent Coloring Day, which took place last September in 2016. This photo is really special to me because Chance his idol Kanye, myself, this is in the baseball stadium that I grew up going to baseball games in. These are uh, two things that, that happened to me in the last um, year. This is the Forbes Music 30 Under 30, and this is the Billboard's uh, Rising Stars 40 Under 40. Uh, that day was tell my parents. I was like, I'm probably not gonna do school anymore. You know, they were pissed. And, like, you know, what are you doing? You're throwing your life away type of thing. And they actually made me and my two parents all went to group counseling sessions from that day in May for about six weeks until Chance's show in June. They're like, you're not driving out of school. No way. Like, don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> Just fair. So I told him, I was like, I'll agree to go to the counseling sessions if you agree to hear me out on this thing. Like, we're going to do this show at Lincoln Hall, and it's going to sell out, and it's going to be crazy. Chance, myself, and Mr. Bennett all got to work on, like, campaigning this 10-day show. It was every day, postering schools. Mr. Bennett was driving us around. He was super involved, and we sold out the show. The last counseling session that I go to with my parents, the counselor walks in and says, oh, I heard about the show on the radio station on the way into work today. And I look over at my parents, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And that was the last time we ever went to the counselor. They said, you got one year. You can pursue this opportunity, and if in one year you haven't made the progress that we think you should make, then you got to go back to school. So we played Lincoln Hall, and uh, I had sort of a moment of vindication when I walked in, and everyone looked at me like, why the fuck is this guy back? You know, and I think over the course of the night, they realized that I'm fucking here to throw the chance show, motherfucker. <laughs> like, that's, that was like my, I was like, yeah, I'm with fucking chance. 
bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then on June 8th, we played this Childish Gambino show on First Ave in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And we were off to the races. So in those first moments with Chance, had the idea of being a completely independent unit, was that something that you guys were talking about? Or were you really just sort of trying to build his celebrity and, and build his following? We started getting the calls. And the independency thing didn't really come up until we started taking the meetings and realizing what it meant to be as, uh, like a signed artist meant. You know, like we didn't know what the contracts looked like or or what what it even all entailed. So we started taking the meetings with the the idea of just like, let's just go and learn something. I wasn't in the position or in the role of saying like yes or no to people. It was more of like just being there for chance and helping him filter this because at the end of the day, that's my style. I'm not, I don't want to be like the, the king, you know, mm -hmm. but I'll be like a dope you know, advisor, like a Tyrion, you know? <laughs> Deal. The day we came out to New York, our first time ever going to New York, we were all really excited about it. It was, like, dope. It meant that we were going in the right direction. And that was in June of 2012. And uh, Chance's parents um, and I and Chance, we all spoke about it because it was like, hey, this is an opportunity. Like, maybe we should do this. And uh, what I said to Chance and his dad, I said, you know, I don't think you want to, you know, marry the first label that you date. I think that you want to date around in this scenario, like meet people and see what's best. And I think it's, if anything, it's you're just going to be able to learn more. Mm -hmm. From that and a series of other conversations, we decided let's take more meetings and see what we can learn. So from there, it was like the meeting season. You know, where we would, we met with everyone from Sylvia Roan to every single, like, cool A&R, Tunji, who at the time was working at uh, Universal. Um, we met with Sycamore, who at the time was working at Def Jam. Um, we met with John Janik. There's a moment sort of like where what happened to the election would weigh in on what would happen with Chance's family. Um, Chance's dad had worked for Barack leading into his presidency um, and then was appointed by Barack and um, you know obviously being a presidential appointed person in the government um, things change if there's a switch in the guard right I think Chance felt pressure on himself to be a provider for his family in in that case you know I think he was really hard on himself and said hey if my parents need me like I'm gonna do what I have to do to to provide and be a great son for my parents because they've been great to me. But after the election happened and Brock stayed in office, thank God, the pressure was off to like make a decision on working with someone and getting an advance check. Were the labels incredulous that you were not jumping at these opportunities that they were offering? Probably at the beginning, but I think they realized that after you know a few months of us taking the meetings that we weren't playing the game to up the ante that we were really out there to learn something and if you're salty because you didn't sign chance then you're salty but at least you could respect that what we were what we were trying to do was good for us and, and it was like an experience and something that we were learning from take me through the this you know the fall of 2012 and 13 this is when chance really starts to hit the national radar 
you're working on acid rap. Did you, as the manager or he as the artist, have any sort of sense of expectation or pointed ambition for what that next project was going to do? Yeah, definitely. So that summer, Nate Fox had sent Chance this beat pack. Chance was in the studio and he um, he said, I got this beat pack. It's fucking tight. I'm going to make a whole entire mixtape with these Nate Fox beats and I'm going to call it Acid Rap. Tuesday in April. So I opened up my phone. I went to the calendar. I said, Tuesday, April 30th. He goes, we'll put it out then. The focus was just getting the project done for basically from that time in June until the project came out with some meetings involved and learning, which was really fun, meeting new people. I mean, if you look at Astrap, there's amazing features on there, which were really fun. We spent a lot of time with Donald um, at his house in Malibu. He was renting out Chris Bosch's house in Malibu, which was, like, ridiculous. And Chance and I stayed in the master bedroom closet. Like they had blow-up mattresses in the closet of the master bedroom. And, uh, so we spent a lot of time there. And so that was sort of like what the year looked like. A lot of traveling, a lot of time in the studio, um, lots of cigarettes and writing. And I would sit there and I'd be with him every day. And we'd get business done. I'd bother him and say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And we'd just roll that way. And you knew you weren't going to sell this. He wanted to sell Acid Rap like the last couple weeks He's like, let's sell it. And um, I was like, dude, nothing on it is cleared. Like, no way. And uh, he's like, all right, all right, all right. So it was, like, <laughs> it was just like a little fragment in, in the air that was sort of like an elephant standing in the room. Like, duh, like, why don't you guys make some money off this? But at the end of the day, we both, we didn't want anything to get in the way of this thing. I think, you know, January is when we put out Juice. Yeah. And that was like the big moment where everyone had sort of like covered chance and actually when we put out juice we did put it for sale oh really and um we found out about a day after our lawyer called uh, me and he said you guys put out that song for sale there's a sample in it and i was like okay so what like fuck it you know <laughs> being the like you know inexperienced kid that i was and he was like well it's a john lennon interpolation and we we're like He's like, you got to take it down now or you're going to have to deal with this bullshit. So we took it down immediately, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, we, we kept the project for free. How does your life change when Acid Rap hits? You know, after that project had come out, we pretty much almost immediately got on tour with Mac Miller about six weeks later. Um, and then we were on the road, you know, and like the road just completely sucks you in. And that was a whole experience, our first time being on the road. We got Red Bull to give us a check for $20,000, and we bought a used RV with it. Chance, myself, DJ Oreo, and my buddy from growing up, Danny Cerrone, went out on their own. Danny was the driver. I was the manager. Chance and Oreo were performers. And I think we put in on that tour, which was like from mid-June to like the beginning of August, had have been close to 20,000 miles in that RV in a steel, like, aluminum box that didn't have any air conditioning. So it's like a total experience. And beyond just, like, learning how to tour, figuring out how to advance a show, you know, like, without any help, you know, with being the little guy in the situation, chance to turn the fuck up every night, and it was incredible. 
And that's what everybody wanted, you know? Everyone listened to the project, and everybody wanted to see him live. And then after that, we went and did five shows with Eminem in Europe, which was, like, ridiculous. When you're doing these shows, are people knowing the words at this point? Not in Europe. In America, for sure. In, in the U.S., it was, like, almost Chance and Mac Miller's tour. As all this stuff starts rolling and the opportunities start becoming more and more abundant, it becomes more obvious that what is happening with Chance is going to be enormous. Was there a moment where you guys made the sort of hard decision, like, we are going to do this all ourselves. We are not going to, you know, sign a publishing deal or sign a record contract. You know, there wasn't really one conversation that I can recall where we just said, we're not going to do it, or he said, I'm not going to do it. It was just sort of the unspoken conclusion like <laughs> this is not going to work for us we're we're feeling this role already we don't need the help of a major label and actually chance had refused to hire a lawyer when we go and went and did those meetings so we do a meeting with someone um like la reed <laughs> and they'd be like who can i send this contract to and we we'd be like well we don't have a lawyer so you can't send it to anyone <laughs> and uh, that was like one of our tactics as we did all those meetings. We just wanted to put out music to feed the streets, really. When do you start thinking about, like, he's going to have to, we have to administer his publishing. Like, someone has to step up and figure that out. Yeah, I mean, the publishers will make you feel like you need that stuff. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of people who haven't sold their publishing. They'll make it seem like you need you need a publisher, you need someone to, you know, find producers for you or songwriters for you. You need someone to get those royalties and collect those royalties. And in some sense on the royalty collection, they're right, but there are other ways to collect royalties outside of signing away your publishing. You set that up, though, internally within your organization. Yes. Yeah. Chance, Chance and I have, and with our teams, you know, and every musician, there's verticals so there's a booking agent vertical there's usually a press vertical there's a business management vertical there's a legal vertical there's a management vertical through chances desire to remain independent we had to build all of those teams proprietarily with no background in it none how did that go the first team that we built was the merch team so like i bought shopchancetherapper.com we put up the merch and we started making it at a local merch shop with no relationship, just found a merch shop. Hey, print this, I gotta ship it out this week. Then what was next, PR? Press, yeah. And I think with press it's more of just managing it, you know, especially when you have so much so much excitement like Chance and someone who's so genuine and real as Chance, it's easy to do press for. As we got into, from acid rap going into the surf days, that's where we really developed our chops in the record making, the publishing conversations with, okay, we're gonna make a fully cleared record and I gotta figure out how much publishing to give to this producer and that producer and this feature and that songwriter. And that was the first time for all of us. And so you're uh, negotiating splits and thinking about clearances and all of that. Advances, yeah, sample clearances. And uh, that's where we got our, our first taste of clearing a record. And um, it could be really fun it could be really hard, but yeah, you know, we, we were able to edit a book 
um, which was uh, Everything That You Need to Know About the Music Industry, which is uh, by Donald Passman, uh, who's an entertainment lawyer to this day. And it's pretty much the Bible when it comes to working in the music industry. For anyone who wants to understand the music industry, if you know that book, you're miles and miles ahead of anyone else in the game. Um, and that's where I got a lot of my chops from going into the surf process. I was reading that book every day. Take me through how you and Chance make your creative decisions. It's all Chance. And I'm a sounding board. I don't view myself as someone who makes decisions for any of the people that I work with. I'm going to give you the statistics on it. I'm going to give you the analytics. I'm going to give you my input and my perspective. And tell you, here's this idea I came up with. Here's all the facts on it. Now, you know, you, you do what you want to do. You know, there'll be, there'll be a fork in the road, right? Decision that we have to make. And we duke it out, right? And then as soon as we come to an answer, whether it's something that I initiated or whether he initiated, whatever we decided on, like, he's leading the charge. And, like, even if I hated the idea, like, I'm right, you know, right behind him, like, or I'm right in front of him, like, full backing it all the way to the end zone. As Chance's fame surged beyond all expectation, he and Corcoran prepared to launch their biggest project yet. But the two had no idea the opposition that they would face in that defining moment. In December of 2012, I moved in here with Eric Montanez, my partner, and I was just ramping up with all the Chance stuff. So we're like, let's get into a huge space and just, like, live together um, and... Uh, and work together and that was upstairs and when we lived upstairs this whole entire space was a dollar store so we moved in we actually bought like 